Thanks for being back tonight to worship God and study His Word. Thank you, Mark, for leading us in those songs about Jesus' love. That's why we're here, isn't it? Because of the love that He showed for us and our uh, our debt to Him. And a debt that we can never pay back, but we, we love Him because He first loved us. And we need to be committed to serving Him every day of our life. Well, as uh, Joseph just read for us, as Jesus is in the garden or, uh, before his death, uh, not in the garden, but before his death, Jesus is praying for um, those who would be his disciples, and his desire was that they would be one, that they would be unified. Denominationalism is a facet in the religious world today, as you well know. According to one account, there are literally tens of thousands of denominations in the world today. Somewhere, it depends on where you look and what numbers you see, somewhere near 40,000 different denominations, maybe. maybe. Uh, and many look at that religious landscape as that just being normal. That's just, that's okay. That's the way it is, and that's a good thing. Uh, and they even think that there may be some benefits to the idea of all of these thousands of religious denominations. You have seen the slogan, no doubt, Attend the church of your choice. That used to be on the back of semi-truck trailers. It used to be on your pizza box when you opened up your pizza box. It used to be all over. Attend the church of your choice was the mantra of many. In other words, you just need to go out among the thousands of different denominations and find one that teaches it the way you like it to be taught and join that church. Attend it this Sunday. It'll be great if you would. It's okay that these churches are vastly different, that they're teaching vastly different doctrines. That's okay. It's accepted, and it's just fine. It's not just fine, though, according to God. Tonight, I'd like to look at with you at what is wrong with denominationalism, because I think the scriptures are very clear that God, when he sees the tens of thousands of different denominations in the world today who all claim to be Christian and following Christ, God is not happy with that. And there are a number of reasons why God's not happy with the religious landscape that he sees today. Before we get started, though, we need to look at what a denomination is. A denomination is a large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name and organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy. That's from the American Heritage Dictionary. A denomination, again, is a large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name and organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy. So it is multiple congregations united with a common name, with a common set of beliefs, under a common administrative organization. That's a denomination. They have a common name that ties them together. They have a common governing body that ties them together. And that governing body is greater than the governing body of the local church. No, that is a body outside of the local church and greater than the local church that governs this group of congregations. We're familiar with many of them, aren't we? The Roman Catholic Church has that hierarchy of all of the individual Roman Catholic churches that 
have this organization. They wear the common name. They all submit to the authority of the Pope and all of the structure underneath him. We're familiar with that. The Eastern Orthodox Church is a group of churches that all submit to the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople. That makes up an Eastern Orthodox Church. The Anglican Church is a group of churches that submit to the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And on and on it goes. We're familiar with the Southern Baptists who have their organization of all the Southern Baptist churches that submit to the authority of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is a group of Lutheran churches. There are several different branches of Lutheran churches, but this branch would uh, submit to the synod that is in Missouri. There are other branches of the Lutheran church as well. But you get the idea of groups of churches that wear a common name and that submit to a governing body and hierarchy greater than the local church. That's a denomination. And I want to tell you, denominationalism is nothing new. It has been in, around for centuries. Many believe that denominationalism started with the Protestant Reformation. That started in the 1500s. But there's evidence of denominations existing far earlier than that. In, uh, 300, uh, and, uh, in the 300s A.D., and maybe even earlier than that in the 200 A.D. area, we understand that there were already denominations there were different groups who were practicing different things that were organized. In fact, there's some indication that the roots of this were already starting in the first century. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 10, Christians were already starting to divide in the first century, which is shocking. When you could still go and talk to an apostle, there were Christians who were already dividing. When apostles could tell you what God wanted you to do, there were people that were already dividing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There's some indication here that division was already starting, and maybe the roots of denominationalism were already starting there in the first century. But I want to tell you, denominationalism is wrong. It is not according to God, God's will, and what God would desire for those who claim to be Christians. Why is it not right? Why is it not acceptable? Well, I'll tell you because denominationalism is unscriptural. Denominationalism is not right. It is wrong because it is unscriptural. We talked about the fact that denominations are groups of congregations that are organized under some type of leadership organization, some type of leadership hierarchy that's greater than the local church. I want to tell you, that goes against what we read in the Bible. There's no description of any type of organizational structure like that in the Bible. And therefore, it is unscriptural. And no denomination can point to the Bible and say, we are 
in the Bible because here we see this structure and this denomination being mentioned. There's no mention of that. The New Testament pattern for the organization of churches is that each church is independent and each church is autonomous. It does not answer to any type of other earthly organization. The leadership of local churches, as God has designed it, is of elders. Those elders are known by the name of pastor in the New Testament. They're known by the name of bishop or overseer or presbyter or shepherds. And they are in every church, or as if, if a church is structured like God would have it to be. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. There were elders in the church at Ephesus. In that local congregation, there were elders. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul tells the elders, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. Elders were to shepherd the flock that was among them. In fact, in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, notice what Peter says to elders. The elders who are among you I exhort, I whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly. Elders are to shepherd. Notice what they're to shepherd. The flock of God which is among you. The oversight of elders is limited to the local church that they shepherd. And nothing greater than that. And so denominationalism is wrong because it's unscriptural. This idea that we would have a group of churches that are organized under some type of hierarchy greater than the local church is unscriptural. And I want to tell you that there are actions and organizations conducted by folks who call themselves Churches of Christ that are very similar to this, where churches are organized together in a work that is something greater than just the local church, and we have no authority for that. Every time you read about local churches in the Bible, they're independent. They're not working together. They're not organized under anything other than just the local church. We've got to make sure that we understand that. I want to tell you denominationalism is wrong as well because just by the fact that we would accept denominationalism, it would imply that we can't achieve unity. That the idea that followers of Christ could be agreed upon on agree and in unity on the teachings of the Bible, that it implies that that's not possible, that we have to have different denominations because we'll never be able to agree on what God's word is and God's word, God's will is for us. But I'll tell you throughout the Bible, and I've got a long list of verses that we're going to look at here. The Bible commands us to be unified in our beliefs and practices. In Psalm 133, verse 1, Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now that's not the picture that you'd get from the denominational world today, is it? Oh, we can't dwell together in unity. That's impossible, they would say. But the psalmist says it's good. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, 
Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Paul commands, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be of the same mind. Over and over again, we're going to see this command. That God's will for us is that we be of the same mind. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. We're to be at peace. We're to be unified. And that unity is not just some type of ambiguous and somewhat oxymoronic unity in diversity. That's an impossibility. That This unity is to be unified on the teachings of God's word. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify and uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that happening in the religious world today? Are the denominations around us doing this? No. By the fact that they claim to be different and separate from each other shows us that they're not unified. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Be unified, be of one mind. Denominations are not of one mind. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Are the tens of thousands of religious denominations today of one mind and of one spirit? Absolutely not. And by the fact that we would promote denominationalism as a good thing, that we should just find the church that suits us and attend it, shows us that we don't think this is possible. People don't believe that we can do what the scriptures tell us to do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill you my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. Nevertheless, to... Uh, the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. We are to be unified on the principles of God's word. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. We're commanded to be unified. We're commanded to be of one mind, to be together and unified. And that is not just some type of pie-in-the-sky, idealistic goal that God has set for his followers. That he'd like to put that goal for us to reach that high bar and nobody's ever going to be able to achieve it, but he just wants us to have that idea in mind. No, unity can be achieved. It is commanded and it can be achieved. It was achieved in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, notice how the believers were unified. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. They were of one heart and one soul. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, notice how Paul described the religious landscape 
of Christians in his time. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. First century Christians were unified on the truths of God's word. It is possible to be unified. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. Unity was commanded. It wasn't just a pie-in-the-sky thing and pie-in-the-sky concept that nobody could ever really achieve. No, they achieved it in the first century. And how did they achieve it? How did they achieve it in the first century, and how can we achieve it today? We can achieve it today if we'll submit to this pattern. If we'll do what this says in, uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. If we'll all do the same thing, if we'll all do what this book tells us to do, we will be unified, won't we? We will have unity. We won't be divided. There won't be tens of thousands of denominations that believe and practice different things. How could we be unified if we're all doing different things? No, we've got to submit to this pattern. In first, Second John chapter one, or Second John verse nine through eleven. Second John beginning of verse nine. Whosoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Are there going to be people who don't align with what the scriptures teach? Yes. Can we have fellowship with them? No. But true believers of Christ and true followers of Christ can be unified if they will align with the doctrine of Christ. Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth to be turned aside to fables. Unity can be achieved. We're commanded to be unified. First century churches and Christians were unified. And we can be unified if we'll align with this, what the scriptures teach. And we'll follow it and it alone. Denominationalism is wrong because it implies by its very existence that unity cannot be achieved. But I want to tell you something else. Not only does it imply that unity can't be achieved, denominationalism actually causes and promotes division. By the fact that we agree to be divided and be in different denominations, it promotes division. Choose the church of your choice. Be divided. Don't have the expectation that we all be aligned. No, just join the denomination that you like. It promotes division. And it's contrary to the prayer for, that Jesus had for unity among his believers. In John chapter 17, verse 20, the passage that Joseph read for us that we've looked at. Jesus wanted us to be one. And it was not a unity and diversity. It wasn't, hey, you overlook the differences that you have with me and I'll overlook the differences that I have with them. That we'll all just be unified in this sort of fake, made-up, pseudo-unity. No, Jesus says he wants us to be one and he tells us how he wants to be one. In John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, 
that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and you have loved them as you loved me. Jesus didn't say, hey, you guys just agree to disagree. You just agree that you're going to have different views, and whatever view you want to have, that's fine, but you just hold hands, and you just say you believe in me, and everything's okay. No, he said he wants us to be unified like he and the Father are unified. What do the Father and the Son think about marriage and divorce and remarriage? You know, God the Father thinks that you ought to have divorce for any reason. But Jesus thinks it needs to be just for one reason. Is that how it is, how it goes? And God the Father wants to be worshipped in one way, and Jesus wants to be worshipped in some other way that's 180 degrees different. And they just agree to disagree. Is that how it is? No, they're completely unified. And that's the unity that he wants for us. But denominationalism promotes differences. and says it doesn't matter. You can be different if you want. Denominationalism is condemned by Paul. As we've looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Denominationalism promoted, and this alignment with different factions in the church promoted division. And Paul condemned it. He condemned it because he said it shows carnality in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Don't you see that this is what men and women like to do? They like to divide up, don't they? That's carnal when we do that. And denominationalism promotes this division, and it is wrong for that reason. Denominationalism is also wrong because it implies that absolute truth doesn't exist. Denominationalism implies that absolute truth doesn't exist. Part of the idea of having multiple denominations is the idea that it just doesn't really matter what you believe. This church believes you can baptize by sprinkling. This group over here believes you, can, you need to only baptize by immersion. This group over here says you can baptize infants who don't know what they're doing. They just think they're getting a bath. And this group over here says you need to baptize those who understand what they're doing. But there's really no way to know what the Bible teaches on that, and there's no way that we'll be able to agree on that because this truth is just sort of fuzzy. There's really no absolute. And they're good for believing it this way. And this group that believes it 180 degrees opposite, they're good for that because there's really no way to understand what the Bible teaches. It's all sort of fuzzy. So just find the church that preaches it the way that you understand it and join that church and everything's okay. Because truth is sort of fuzzy and there's really no absolute. There's no absolute right or wrong. And so we need to have tens of thousands of different groups who preach it and teach it different ways. But the Bible says that absolute truth exists and it's available. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all to the saints. There is the faith. There is one faith. There's not a Baptist faith and a Methodist faith and a Presbyterian faith. There is one faith. And it was once for all delivered. It's not something that is a journey. It's not something that's just changed, changing over time. The truth was delivered 
once for all, and we need to align with it. It is absolute. And yet we hear people talk about their faith, don't we? I was of the Methodist faith, or I was of the Presbyterian faith growing up, and now I'm of this faith. No, there's one faith. The Bible says, Jesus says, that absolute truth is, exists and it's available. In John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Truth is singular, isn't it? There is one. There is an absolute. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Absolute truth exists. Jesus said it exists. And absolute truth, this is understandable. Ephesians chapter 5. Sorry, John 8, 32 first. Jesus said you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus said we can understand this. It's not some kind of ambiguous, fuzzy thing that we're going to have to have tens of thousands of different groups believing and practicing different things because this is all fuzzy. No. Jesus said we can know it, and it will make us free. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14 Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Notice this. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Absolute truth exists, and we can understand it. God hasn't hidden this in some type of mystery that nobody's going to be able to understand. But you've got to do hours of research on one topic to understand it. And you've got to get in and read all the behind the scenes and the secret codes. No, this is understandable. And if we'll understand it and submit to it, we'll be unified. Absolute truth exists. Denominationalism is wrong because it implies that absolute truth doesn't exist. I want to tell you, absolute, or denominationalism is wrong. Point blank, because it is harmful to the cause of Christ. Jesus said that unity of his followers would be imperative to us making the impact in the world that we should have. John 17, verse 21 again. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. People who are not Christians point to the thousands of so-called Christian denominations, and say, how in the world could Christianity be right when even Christians can't agree on what they're supposed to do? Atheists look at the division in the religious world around us and say, well, that shows me that I shouldn't believe in God. And it's no surprise because Jesus said that we need to be unified if people are going to believe that Christianity is the way to go. It does matter what you believe in practice. Denominationalism is wrong. And you know, there are religious leaders throughout time who have noticed that this is not a good thing, that churches dividing and be, being factious is not a good thing. Martin Luther, who was very uh, instrumental in the Reformation movement, said this. Here's what Martin Luther said. I ask that men make no reference to my name and call themselves not Lutherans but Christians. What is Luther? My doctrine, I am sure, is not mine, nor have I been crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrin, but Christian. 
How then should I, poor foul carcass that I am, come to have men give to the children of Christ a name derived from my worthless name? No, no, my dear friends, let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose doctrine we have. Luther realized there were some problems with dividing up and calling yourselves by different names. John Wesley, another instrumental person in the Reformation movement, uh, who helped establish those who would be called Methodist and Wesleyans today, said, Would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot, and that the very name Methodist might never be mentioned more, but be buried in eternal oblivion. He saw the danger of this. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, said this, I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope that the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. Now, to what extent they disagreed with denominationalism, this doesn't indicate. But they certainly saw some dangers, didn't they? Denominationalism is wrong. We need to be unified on Christ's teaching. We need to be of one mind and be unified because it is so imperative for the cause of Christ that we be unified on God's word. And it is possible. Unity is possible. If you had it in the first century, we can have it today. Before we conclude our lesson tonight, though, I'd like to look at a question, though, when we say that denominationalism is wrong. Many people will say, well, I just believe they are saved in every denomination. There are saved people in every denomination. I want to look at that question with you, too, because that's the idea. You just find the denomination that you like, and you be committed to Christ, and you serve him, and it doesn't really matter what denomination you're in. There are saved people. There are good people everywhere. It doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. Are there really saved people in every denomination? I want to tell you, one reason why people want to make that statement is because they look at the religious world around us and they see sincere people in the Methodist church. They see sincere people in the Lutheran church or the Baptist church. They see people that are very sincere in their religion and they say, well, they must be all right with God because they're sincere. I want to tell you, sincerity is necessary. It is imperative. We will not be pleasing to God if we're not sincere in our religious practices. But sincerity alone does not guarantee that someone will be accepted by God. Paul had a lot of interaction with people who were very sincere. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Those who were practicing Judaism in Paul's day were very sincere in that. They had a zeal for God. They were very sincere. But Paul says that they were wrong. Paul knew they were wrong because he had been in their shoes not too long earlier. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was zealous. He was sincere. And yet he was wrong. 
he goes on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, to talk about his past life, where he said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was very sincere. But he was sincerely wrong, wasn't he? And Jesus said on the day of judgment, it was going to be a shock to many people who had been sincerely religious in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There were people who were sincere and dedicated to Jesus, and they were doing all kinds of deeds and actions that they said were in the name of Jesus, but Jesus says you weren't doing in the right way. You're not pleasing to me. Paul said he thought himself that he might, must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was sincere, and that he was not right. Sincerity doesn't determine God's approval. If sincerity is all it takes, and if there are people in different denominations who are sincere and they're right and they're saved, is sincerity the only judge of that? Do I even have to believe in Christ if sincerity is the only thing? You know, there are a lot of sincere Muslims. There are a lot of sincere Jews. There are a lot of sincere other people who are doing all kinds of things. Does that make them okay? As long as they're sincere in their religion, clearly it does not. A lot of people will... Look at that sincerity is just sort of giving them a pass. You show them from the scriptures things that they're doing that don't align with what the scriptures teach. And rather than aligning themselves with what the scriptures teach, you know what they say? Well, God knows my heart. God knows I'm sincere, even though I'm not doing what I should do. And then that's supposed to be okay. We just sort of give them a pass. Obviously, sincerity alone doesn't determine if we're approved of God. I want to tell you, dedication and sacrifice doesn't determine if we're uh, pleasing to God. Not only are there people in the denomination world, denominational world who are sincere, there are a lot of people in the denominational world who go to great lengths to serve God and make sacrifices for God in the denominational world. We notice from the scriptures, though, that this is not enough. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Acts 26, verse 9 again, Paul says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now notice how many sacrifices Paul made. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a Jewish man on a mission, going after Christians. He was working hard at it. He obviously wasn't pleasing to God while he did that. Dedication and sacrifice does not determine if we're pleasing to God. I'll tell you something else that doesn't determine if we're pleasing to God, and that is the ignorance. There are a lot of people who see folks in denominational error who are unaware of the error that they're practicing because that's what they've been taught all of their lives. And people excuse the error that they're practicing because they're ignorant of that and say, well, they must be okay with God because they don't know any better. They don't know that they're in error. 
I want to tell you, ignorance does not justify. Ignorance does not make us okay with God. If we're, just because we're practicing error and don't know it, that doesn't make it right. In John chapter 16, in John chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus said this was going to happen. That people would be serving God or trying to serve God out of ignorance. And obviously Jesus is not pleased with what they're doing. In John 16, beginning verse 1, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Jews were going to persecute Christians even to the point of death and be fully committed that they were doing what God wanted them to do out of ignorance. Are they okay? Are they right with God because they were persecuting Christians out of ignorance? No, not at all. Nor is it for us today. Paul was one of those who did what he did out of ignorance. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. While Paul was persecuting Christians. While Paul was standing by while Stephen was stoned and they were throwing their coats at his feet. He was doing that with a clear conscience because he was ignorant. Ignorance doesn't make it right. Just because someone is doing something out of ignorance doesn't make it okay. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, talking about the coming judgment, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in ignorance are going to be punished. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance of the truth doesn't mean that God's okay with your error that you're practicing. We need to make sure that we understand that. I want to tell you, there were a lot of implications of saying that there are saved people in every denomination. And these implications should show us that this simply is not the truth. The implication of saying that they are saved in every denomination is implying that we can be walking in the light in a denomination. 1 John 1 verse 7 tells us that we need to be walking in the light to be saved. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we're going to be saved, brethren, we need to be walking in the light. That's how we're saved. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin when we're walking in the light. And so, if I'm going to say there are saved people in every denomination, that means there are people who are walking in the light in every denomination. There are people doing things that aren't authorized by God's word, but yet they're still walking in the light. That doesn't make sense, does it? By saying they are saved in every denomination, it implies that we can walk in the light in a denomination. That simply is not the case. It also says that if we believe they are saved in every denomination, that we can worship God in spirit and in truth in a denomination. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23 beginning, But the hour is coming. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. To be pleasing to God, we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Now, you just take a look around the tens of thousands of religious denominations today at the various forms of worship. There are people worshiping God today in what looks like nothing else other than a rock concert. There are war people worshiping God today by trying to worship him with interpretive dance. There are people who in this area have tried to worship God with indoor fireworks and preachers riding bulls in worship service. Are we worshiping in spirit and truth in denominations? We have to be if we're saying we're saved or there are saved people in every church. Are we saying that that is worshiping God in spirit and truth? Clearly not. When we say that there are saved people in every denomination, I want to tell you it also implies that it doesn't matter if we act with authority or if we don't. Paul said in Galatians chapter, or Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus said we have to have authority for all that we do. And if we don't, it's sin. It's against God's will. And denominations are clearly doing things that don't, constitute having authority. If there are saved people that are doing things without authority, are we saying that that's okay? The implication is it doesn't matter if we say they are saved in every denomination. Finally tonight, if we say that they are saved in every denomination, it implies then that we can be saved in a denomination. And the implications of saying that we can be saved in a denomination are great. We have to be faithful to be pleasing to God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. In order to be saved, I've got to be faithful. And to say that they are saved in a denomination, then would say that there are people who are being faithful to God in a denomination. That God will save people in denominations. Yet we know from the scriptures that Christ saves those who are in his body. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for he is the savior of the body. Christ is the savior of the body. And so if he's saving people who are in denominations, then that must imply that denominations and the religious world around us is divided, that the body of Christ is divided. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says the same thing, that the body, uh, that Christ is the Savior of the body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have been all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. We've got to be in the body in order to be saved. If we say that there are saved people who are in denominations, we would say then that the body of Christ is divided. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 that we've looked at already tells us that the body of Christ is not divided. Are there saved in every denomination? No, that doesn't align with what the Scriptures teach, does it? The Scriptures teach that we have to be aligned with this. We have to be unified on this if we're going to be pleasing to God. Denominationalism is wrong. It's patently wrong. We need to understand that, and we need to be ready to share that truth with others. But I don't want to tell you what we need to be careful about is we need to be careful that we do not adopt denominational thinking 
and denominational terminology. As we're talking with others, we need to make them understand very clearly that the Church of Christ is not a denomination, that we are an independent group of Christians who are trying to fa- uh, function and organize ourselves just like we read in the Bible, that we're not the Church of Christ denomination. We need, we need to be careful in the terminology that we use, that we don't represent the Church of Christ as a denomination by saying things like, the Church of Christ believes. That leaves the impression in people's minds that we're just a denomination, that we've got a creed somewhere. This is what we follow. This is what we practice. As we said, that the denominational idea of a hierarchy, of a group of Christian or group of churches under some type of organizational head bigger than the church, that's unscriptural. We need to make sure that we never practice or engage in anything like that. Hope the things we've talked about tonight have been helpful. We'll offer the invitation one more time tonight for those who may not be in a right relationship with God, have not submitted to him in baptism, have not walked in the light as he is in the light. If there's anything we can do to help you spiritually tonight, will you let us know while we stand and sing?